This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? So far, so good. But I don't know. We do this every week, and I never think about how I'm going to like bring this in or start the conversation with you. Like I, Until we go to hit that stupid button, I never think about it. Until you hit it. the record button? Yeah. You know, like I'm always like, yeah, I got it. And then like I don't think about it again until the next time I'm like, oh, we're about to record. And I have no idea what to talk about. So <laughs> this is it this oh, week. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's just get right into it then, because this case could be really long because we're doing another episode that's kind of geographically close to where we grew up and where you live now. So, yeah, there's like connections and stuff. And it's a long case anyway. So maybe we should just get right into it. No, no chit chatting, Grant. (laughs) Until we started this, I didn't realize the amount of crime that went on around us. Uh, but yeah. it's a lot and it's a yeah. lot where we like used to live, like where we grew up, which again, like you think Orange County, California, like pretty easy going and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, beg to differ, I guess. Yeah. It's amazing. Our mom survived it to have us. I know Richard Ramirez, uh, Rodney Alcala, all sorts of stuff going on. They, yeah. Golden State Killer. Yeah. They made it through all of it. Yeah. Hillside Stranglers. Okay. Well, <laughs> Today, I know I'm like, we're getting off track again. So let's get into this one because tonight we're going to talk about Rodney Alcala or Alcala or however the hell you want to. I like Alcala. I was I was looking into this. I've heard different people pronounce it. I like Rodney Alcala. I think that rolls off the tongue a lot better than Rodney Alcala. That sounds really stupid, honestly. Well, and everybody we grew up with whose last name is Alcala, it's Alcala, not Alcala. I didn't grow up with anybody with the last name Alcala. Oh, I went to high school with a couple people with that last name. Oh, I played Mancala. <laughs> All right. Most people have heard of Rodney Alcala, or at least recognize him from the clips of him on the dating game. I think that's so nuts. I I can't wait till we get into that part of the story, because the fact that he was on and won the dating game is just, it, it's a testament to how crazy this guy actually is. Well, the crazier thing, too, is like, that's how he got his moniker, but he didn't kill the lady from the dating game. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. It's like the only person he didn't kill. Well, he probably would have if he had the chance, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Let's start. No chit-chat. Let's start. We'll go from there. (laughs) Okay. So, long before he was on the dating game, September of 1968 in LA, there was an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro that was living with her family at the Chateau Marmont because their house had burned down. And her dad was like a music exec, and she was walking to school down Sunset Boulevard that early morning of September 1968. It's crazy to me to think about. I was just on Sunset um, last week, and I mean, looking at it now, there's tons of people everywhere. There's so much going on. Like, I couldn't imagine this eight-year-old girl just walking down Sunset. Yeah, going to school alone. I know, it's nuts. 
1968 was a totally different world. It had to have been. Clearly. Like, you don't even see kids walking to school anywhere now, let alone on Sunset Boulevard. Like, that's crazy. So Rodney was also driving down Sunset in traffic, which hasn't changed. Apparently, there was still traffic (laughs) in the 60s. When he spotted Tally on the side of the road. So he, like, got over to the right lane, and he leaned over, like, towards the passenger side, and he offered to show her a pretty picture. Oh, God. Textbook creep. I know. He's gross. But... Tally was not stupid. She's like, no, thanks. I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. And she just keeps walking. So he keeps like inching forward in traffic, trying to like keep up with her. And he tells her, he like leans over and he tells her like, hey, I know your parents. I'm not a stranger. He tricks her with that because she's raised to respect adults. And I'm sure with her dad being in the music industry, like she sees a lot of people that they're probably like, hey, be respectful. This is a big wig guy, you know, like yeah, I guess. be nice to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So he tricks her by telling her that he knows her parents. And plus, this is before all the stranger danger stuff and all that. She doesn't know. So she gets into his car and she thinks he's going to drive her to school and show her this picture. But he starts driving to his West Hollywood apartment and she's kind of like, oh, hey, we're not going anywhere near my school. Like she didn't recognize anything. What a way to start the day for this guy, too. Like, he woke up. Yeah. First thing out of bed was, well, I'm going to be a terrible human. You know, like, it didn't. he didn't just yeah. give himself a chance to warm up. He just went right for it. What a, yeah. I don't like this case. Yeah. I, I don't like Rodney Alcala. I, and the thing with it, too, is as we were doing the research, we both talked about it. We forgot how bad this was until we yeah. went deep into this. Yeah, it's bad. So at this point, Tally doesn't know where she is and she will be late for school if he doesn't drive her. So she just kind of like follows his lead and he's like, just come into my apartment. I'll show you the picture and then I'll drive you to school. Oh, my God. Well, I ha- she had to go because she didn't know where she was and she was going to be late for school. So she kind of like reluctantly goes with him into his apartment. But what Tally and Rodney didn't know was that a man named Donald Haynes watched the whole interaction on Sunset Boulevard and didn't like it. He saw Rodney trying to talk to her and lure her and her say no at first and him like he didn't like it. And he followed Rodney and he noticed that there was no plates on the car. And he's like, this just doesn't feel right, you know. So he followed them to Rodney's apartment. And when Rodney and Tally went inside, he ran and found a payphone because this is 68, no cell phones. Sure. And he called the police because he was like, hey, he just took this little girl off the street and now she's in his apartment. Dude, what a hero. What a hero. Yeah. I mean, you know, like he stuck with that too. Like, yep. He could have seen it been like, oh, that's weird. Oh, well, got to get to work. You know, like, thank goodness he didn't. Well, and thank God the police took it seriously when he called. And they weren't just like, yeah, okay, guy. Oh, yeah, we'll get no to kidding, it. huh? I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So they sent out Officer Chris Camacho right away, who was literally like 15 minutes into his first shift back at work after being shot a few weeks before in the line of duty. Oh, Like, shit. this is like 8.15, and he is responding to this call, and it was his first day back after being shot. It's like, oh, man. Yeah, you maybe. It's going to be a day. It's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, so Officer Camacho bangs on the door, and a guy with long curly hair pulled the window curtain back and said, Oh, give me a second, I just got out of the shower. And Officer Camacho was like, Okay, yeah, he was naked, but he wasn't wet, and he just didn't like Rodney's face. He was like, this guy, <laughs> something, he, di- he didn't. I saw an interview with him, and he's like, ah, I just didn't, it didn't sit right with me. 
And so he told him like, hey, you've got like three seconds and I'm going to bust this door down. Right. I'm sure he counted. He was like one, two, you know, and Rodney didn't. So Officer Camacho kicked in the door. Wow. Thank goodness he did, too. Yeah, because Tally was lying on the floor, covered in blood, naked, not breathing, and had a heavy metal bar laid across her neck unbelievable like this just happened like he didn't even like wait a second you know he like he found an an opportunity and he freaking took it yeah it's kind of amazing to think about the damage that he caused to little tally in just the short amount of time she was in her apartment totally yeah it's immense so officer camacho immediately pulled the bar off of her neck because natural instinct you're like oh this you want her to be able to breathe and he starts looking around the apartment for the guy and he realizes that Rodney ran out the back door and he's about to book it and chase him but before he could run out after him he heard Tally choking and gasping for air and he chose to stay with that little girl because she was clinging to life and it's amazing that he did and thankfully that he did and he made the right choice you know you don't go after the suspect in that situation you go after the little girl who is clinging to life Yeah. And thank God he did, because by the time backup arrives, Rodney's gone. But Tally's taken to the hospital and she is in a coma, but she's alive. So it's like he like you said, he had to do what he could for this little girl. She was not dead. So Tally would be in a coma for over a month, but she does survive and makes a full physical recovery. Absolutely incredible. Like, yeah, who would have thought after all of that? She would have been so resilient to bounce back, but she was and she did. Yeah. And while she was in the hospital, they're trying to figure out what the hell just happened. I'm sure it was kind of a whirlwind. They go through the apartment and they find a bunch of photography equipment, ton of pictures, like thousands of pictures of young women and girls and even young boys, just young people in general. But they also find a UCLA student ID card for a Rod James Alcala. Now we got a name. Yeah, they're like, bingo. You know, so now they can start looking for him. So Detective Steve Hodell, who, side note, thinks his dad killed the Black Dahlia, that detective. Oh, wow. (laughs) What a coincidence. Yeah. Detective Hodell is the one who wrote the Black Dahlia Avenger, and it's all about how he thinks his dad, Dr. George Hodell, killed the Black Dahlia, and he's pretty convincing. (laughs) We got to cover that case next. Yeah. So anyway, he starts looking into Rodney and his past and all that kind of stuff. And at first, there's nothing that sends a red flag that he'd be capable of this. He was a normal guy. He was born in Texas. And he had a couple of sisters. He went to pretty good schools. His grandmother was getting older and kind of sickly. And she wanted to die in Mexico. So the whole family packed up and moved to Mexico for the last few years of her life when when Rodney was little. And while they were in Mexico, Rodney's dad went out for cigarettes one day and never came home. We hear about that quite a bit. And it's surprising to learn that like that was a legit thing. People, that's how dudes would dip back in the day. They go out for cigs and just never return. Yeah. Well, he went all the way to another country because he went back to the United States. (laughs) That's quite, that's quite the dip. Yeah. So he was like, really F this family. I don't want to be in it anymore. So it's not at, funny, at but it like, is. yeah. So at age like 11, his grandmother passed away. And that's when his mom moved him and his sisters to East L.A. And she worked really hard and she sent her kids to private school like she really did everything she could to give her kids a really good life. 
And Rodney was actually pretty smart. Like, you'd never know it based on what he ends up doing, but he was. He graduated high school at like 17. He had a super high IQ. He was probably too smart for his own good. You know, we hear about that kind of stuff all the time with serial killers. Yeah, they're really smart, but for the wrong reasons or at the wrong things. Right. So he ended up joining the army after high school. And looking into his time in the service is the first kind of hint that investigators have that Rodney is not as cool as everybody thought he is. Like when they were interviewing his people who knew him from UCLA and stuff, they were like, oh, he's a cool guy. He's real nice. He could never do this, you know. But when they start looking into his army records is when they realize that he suffered a nervous breakdown, which is like, okay, just kind of a general (laughs) term for... He lost his mind for a minute. Right. And he went AWOL a couple times from the army. And the last time he hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, all the way to his mom's house in East L.A. I can't even imagine doing something like that. Like that. I know. I wonder how long that took. I don't know. Probably at least a week, maybe. I don't know. If you get with truckers who don't stop and like, again, this is, you know what the 60s or so like he's probably moving along pretty well i would imagine actually well when he gets to his mom's house in east la she convinces him to turn himself into the army so that he's not a wall and so that they can evaluate his mental state because he's having this nervous breakdown this is reportedly around the same time that rodney finds out that his father who had left them when he was young had passed away oh really yeah and he also found out that his dad had like a whole new family like, got married again and had more kids and all that kind of stuff. But we don't know if that's why he had a nervous breakdown or not. I knew that the dad had kind of gone off and had his own set of kids. But, like, didn't they reconcile with the family before he died? Like, weren't they all pretty cool? Not that I know of, no. Oh. I thought I remember them being like, hey, what you did was pretty shitty, but we're we're kind of cool about it now. We've moved on, but I guess not. I mean, I never heard that anywhere. If you did, show it to me, but I've never heard that. That was aggressive. Why? I don't know, just... Sounded like it would fit in right there, so. If you know it, show it to me. Oh. But I didn't mean it like like prove it or it's not real, but kind of. like Because I, I never read that anywhere. <laughs> I mean, sorry. All right, it's not real. Yeah, so after spending a lot of time with the Army psychiatrist, they ended up diagnosing him with antisocial personality disorder, severe and chronic. Yeah, I would say that they were probably really accurate on that. Yeah. In case anybody doesn't know, antisocial personality disorder is the disregard or violation of the rights of others, difficulty sustaining long-term relationships, lack of empathy, history of rule-breaking, aggressive and impulsive behavior. You know, if you look at actually up in the dictionary, there is a picture of Rodney Alcala right there. So to kind of (laughs) give you the definition. (laughs) Yeah. Not everybody with this personality disorder becomes a serial killer, but a lot of serial killers have this personality disorder. Like, it's pretty common. I think that makes sense. Among serial killers. Yeah. So another interesting thing about antisocial personality disorder is in over 80% of cases, symptoms show in childhood, usually between 8 and 11 years old. Isn't that really interesting? I, I read that too, and I was like, wow, like, we should have a pretty good jump on, like who we might need to keep an eye on pretty early on. Yeah. Like in Rodney's case, I mean, that was kind of like right around the time his dad dipped. Coincidence? Definitely. I don't think so. I think his dad was probably like, this guy's crazy. I got to get out of here. <laughs> like, You think that's what happened? You think that's what happened? I, I mean, from what I read, like this personality disorder rears its head young. I can actually, I can understand that. Yeah. So anyway, the army knew he was not right. And honorably discharged him. 
so now he was free from the army. And he went on to UCLA and he graduated with a bachelor's degree from the School of Fine Arts. So, I mean, because he was still smart. (laughs) Yeah. He just wasn't good for the army. Right. So none of this background info that they found out about him helps Detective Hodel find him, though. Because his only associates and everything are all in L.A. Or maybe there's a few distant family members in Mexico, but nobody's seen him. And he doesn't have anybody connected to him in North Carolina anymore, right? No. So about four months after her attack, Tally's released from the hospital. And she's physically going to make a complete recovery, which is super good. It's incredible, honestly. I mean, like, emotionally, it would take a lot longer. but As, it, as I think it should. You know, I mean, she went yeah. through... Literally hell and back. Yeah. So, meanwhile, unbeknownst to the investigators, naked Rodney ran out the back door and somehow made it all the way to New York City. Wow. Did he ever stop running or did he just kind of run the whole way? I don't know. To me, it sounds like he had help probably from his mommy. Yeah, probably. He probably put some clothes on, too, between now and then. Yeah, probably. So, in New York, though, he fit right in. He literally was hiding in plain sight because he just blended in with the crowd. I mean, it helped that he changed his name to John Berger. He wasn't going by Rodney Alcala. What year was this now? 68. Okay, 68, because that's the summer of love. Was it? I thought 69 was. I believe it's 68. I'll double check. Am I being gross? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God, Erica. You can't say that on our podcast. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, Rodney's still really into photography when he moves to New York. He never went anywhere without his camera, including to NYU, where he enrolled in film school under Roman Polanski. Real quick, we were both wrong. It was 67. And I know how ridiculous is it that he actually like was near Roman Polanski? They were at the same place at the same time, but I don't know that they ever actually like connected. Yeah, but still, like, that just proves you're, like, they always find each other. I know. Like, you always wonder. I know. And I always tell you you're being ridiculous. And then you read (laughs) stuff like this and you're like, oh, two pedophiles in the same classroom. Perfect. I always wonder, like, how do these guys, like, find each other and stuff? and like, Or, like, how do they connect? And clearly the internet helps that. But, like, at this point. Obviously, back then it was film school at NYU. (laughs) Apparently (laughs) that's where they... I know. Did like read all the pedophiles? Was there like give him a look or a wink or something, and they both knew? Like, I always wonder, like, how you know where to go? Like, how do you start that conversation of like, you know what I'm into? Well, you know, because yeah, that's like yeah, well, bizarre. Well, like you said, I don't think they had that conversation. I don't think they knew each other were pedophiles, but just that's true. now we all know they're both pedophiles and they were <laughs> yeah. in the same place. I guess I was just thinking like more broadly, like how did how yes, did two people into kids like end up going like, hey? We're both into kids, right? You know, like, yeah, that's probably because not... they have like a screen name that's like little kid lover. Or... <laughs> so everybody knows what they're into. Oh, thank you, Michael Scott. Yeah. So anyway, in the summertime, he gets a job as a photography teacher at an all girls fine arts summer camp in New Hampshire. Well, that should have happened. Yeah. While he's on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for what he did to Tally. Like, I hope this isn't possible now, but... It can't be. I'm sure you have to go through, like, a live scan or something with fingerprints and more so. But can you just imagine, like, you know, you send your kid off to camp hoping for the best and they end up... Their camp counselor is Rodney frickin' Alcala. Oh, my God. Gross. And this place, I'm sure, was not cheap. I mean, it was a fine arts summer camp in New Hampshire. Like, I'm sure this was not a cheap place to send your kids for the summer. No, that was probably such a headache for the people in charge of that camp. Oh, my God. 
So by 1971, he's been working at this camp for three years. And two girls that were attendants of this camp decide one afternoon to walk up to the post office to send letters home to their parents or whatever. And somehow, like a random summer thunderstorm hit while they were at the post office. So they had to, like, hang out in the post office for a little while and wait for the rain to stop before they could walk back to the camp. And in the post office, of course, they had the poster of the FBI 10 Most Wanted because this was before the Internet. So they used to hang them up in government buildings. They don't anymore still? I would have thought they, why would you stop that? You know, like. Oh, they probably do. I just, I guess since the Internet exists, you don't have to go to government buildings anymore. Not as often, but we sometimes ship our from crime to crime stuff from the post office. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't remember. I I don't remember seeing one. But I look up the FBI 10 Most Wanted all the time, so (laughs) it probably would. Like, I know who's on it, so it probably wouldn't register. Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, I do, and we're not going to list them, Grant. Come on. We're talking about this one. I'll Uh, list them after we're done recording. All right. I don't... I don't care personally. I want everyone to hear you list them off. No, that makes me sound like a weirdo. Stop. So this is where you draw the line on being weird on this stuff. That knowing the 10 most wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So while they're in the post office, these two girls see the 10, 10 most wanted list or whatever. And they're like looking at, you know, they're interested. They're like, oh, what did this guy do? What did this guy do? They don't have anything else to do. They're just waiting out a storm in a post office. It can't be that interesting, you know? And all of a sudden they look at one of the guys and they're like, oh my gosh, that's- Mr. Burger. Well, no, they're like, that's Mr. Burger's doppelganger. Oh. They're like, that guy looks just like Mr. Burger. It must be his identical match. You know how people think that everybody has like a doppelganger in the world. Yeah. They're like, it must be his doppelganger. That's crazy. So after the storm's over, they run back to their little camp and they tell the camp director like, hey, we were at the post office and we saw the FBI's 10 most wanted list. There's a guy on there that looks exactly like Mr. Burger. And the director's like, oh, you girls are silly. Um, But then when they leave his office, he's like, I better take a ride up to the post office and just check that out. Honestly, good on that camp director because yeah, who else? I, honestly, I would probably go like, oh, that's really cool or really weird and move on. Like, yeah, you know, like yeah. good on him for being like, I should check this out. Yeah. So he does go check it out. But then he's like, fuck, I'm getting fired. Like, that's my day. That's, yeah, that's my dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he heads back to the camp and immediately calls the FBI and he's like, so I have a problem. The thing and is, they're like, OK, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, OK, you need to. Shut your mouth and don't say anything to anybody. Grab those two girls and I don't care if you got to lock them in a closet, but just don't let them talk to anybody until we get there. Because they didn't want Rodney to hear that people were like, and then run before they could get to him. Or even just talking to him and be like, hey, Mr. Burger, we saw your doppelganger at the post office. It was on a wanted poster. Like right then, those girls are probably dead if he hears that. Yeah. So by the next morning, the FBI gets to the camp, which I'm not sure why it took so long, but okay. (laughs) And I'm like, how rural is this? Because I don't think it should take a whole day, but okay. And they arrest him. Well, they arrest John Berger. And then they figure out that it is Rodney James Alcala. So he's sent back to California to face the abduction, rape, and attempted murder charges for eight-year-old Tally. But they have a big problem because... After Tally got out of the hospital and was recovered from her injuries, her parents decided that they did not want to live in the United States anymore after what happened to Tally, and they moved out of the country. Where'd they go? Mexico. Oh. Mm -hmm. Not the out of the country I would have gone to, but- No, me neither. 
but they moved to Puerto Vallarta, which is pretty. Oh, okay, I might, I might move there. Yeah, thirsty. I could, I could see that happening. Yeah, but they won't let her come back to testify because they're like, no, she's eight. She's not tested. Well, at this point, she's like 11. But they're like, no, she's not testifying. We're not doing any of this. Like, we're moving on with our lives. Like, they're happy he's caught, but they're not going to let her testify or go through a big trial. So for some reason, they couldn't use all the other people's testimony and I don't know, her injuries and all that kind of stuff. So they offered Rodney a plea deal. Oh, my God. Yeah, instead of going to trial. So he pled guilty to child molestation and received a 1 to 99 year sentence. Well, that's pretty uh pretty open-ended there. Right? So 99 years would be fantastic. Thank you very much. But this is the lawless land of the 1970s and California had indeterminate sentencing back then, which meant that his sentence was up to the parole board. It could be as little as 1 year or as much as 99 years. Like he would see the parole board every year after 1 year. I don't like that, but that's not how we do things anymore now, so I guess that's no, why they took it most people didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Apparently back then, too, the mental health profession was pretty cocky. They thought they could rehabilitate violent sex offenders. They were like, no, we could fix them. It's fine. We'll fix them, and then we'll send them back out. And that worked out super well a bunch of times. I'm, I am. I'm super all for rehabilitation, but I... I cannot justify putting people like this back on the street. There's no justification for it. You're rehabilitated. That's wonderful and great, but you are a threat. Like if you do totally. this stuff, you are a threat to society for the rest of your life. Totally. And I'm all about rehabilitating people that can be rehabilitated. Like if you have a drug problem or drinking problem or right. you grew up in kind of a bad environment and you just kind of don't know right from wrong or something, you know, but like violent sex offenders are not. That's not, they don't change. That is what yeah, it is. We, do we know of any cases that end well if people are like, yeah, I went to jail for sex offending, but no. now I'm cool. You know, I mean, no. like, I, we don't hear about that. Yeah, but that's what I was saying. But back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, these psychiatrists were like super cocky and they thought they could fix these guys. They did it with Ed Kemper and they didn't fix him. You know, and then he went back out and killed a bunch of people. So I listened to What Makes a Killer podcast. Uh, it's hosted by Jennifer Nitoso. I just want to shout her out real quick because she did a really good job. And she's a former FBI agent and psychiatric nurse, I believe she is. And she said in her podcast today, like, these people can't be rehabilitated. And I think that's super important to hear from somebody who's yeah. so hands-on like this, you know, because she's able to shed some light that, you know, on a professional level with that kind of stuff. So it's just one podcast, one opinion, but I really liked what she had to say, and I, I think she's right. Yeah, she is right. And the sucky part is, though, this psychopath manipulated the psychiatrist because he was smarter than they were. Which Just is like so Ed Kemper nuts. was know, smarter than so his nuts. psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. So the psychiatrist went to the parole board and was like, Rodney's great. He's responded so well to all my treatment. Like, he's totally rehabbed. He's fine. He, like, totally stood up for him. Well, so I think that this is also an ego thing for this guy, too. Because of course. He totally is like, look, I did it. I I, yep. I healed him. My treatment worked. He's rehabilitated. Like, look how wonderful he is. And I'm sure Rodney was up there like a, you know, like a puppy dog. Just like, yeah, yeah, I'm great. Yeah. See? See how wonderful <laughs> yeah, I am? exactly. Yep. And he was just like, dude, this guy's eating out of the palm of my hand. Yep. So he ended up serving less than three years for murdering Tally because she happened to survive, but he murdered her. Like, he 
thought he murdered her, and he would have murdered her if Officer Camacho didn't bust in and just save her at the last second. <sighs> Absolutely. He was, I mean, he wasn't going to stop. Yeah, so he served less than three years for literally murdering an eight-year-old, sexually assaulting her, the whole thing. By 1974, he's out on parole, just walking the streets, and less than two months out of jail, he abducted a 12-year-old named Julie, and he took her to a remote cliff overlook, like over the beach, and he forced her to smoke pot, and then he started to assault her, and luckily, a ranger pulled up on them and was like, hey, the fuck's going on here? (laughs) You seem too old and you seem too young and you can't smoke weed up here. And what are you doing? You know? And Julie told the ranger, she's like, he kidnapped me and he's forcing me to do drugs. And now he's kissing me against my will. And And Rodney was like, oh, relax. She's just high. It was her pot. She went with me willingly. You know, she brought the pot, blah, blah, blah. And the ranger was like, I don't know what's going on here, but you're both coming with me. Like, we need to sort this out somewhere else. Yeah. Somehow, in this whole situation, Rodney was arrested again and sent back to prison, but not for kidnapping Julie or assaulting her. He was sent back on a parole violation because of the pot. Oh, my God. How infuriating is that? That is, like, super infuriating. Like, I'm like, (laughs) are you shitting me? So he only served two years for this. How is it not a parole violation for him to be found with a freaking 12-year-old off in a remote location? How is that not a violation? That's my thing is even if she did go with him willingly, like say they couldn't prove that he kidnapped her, how is that not a condition of his parole that he couldn't be with a 12-year-old? Right? Like he went there to begin with for hurting an (laughs) 8-year-old. God. Ah. So, and also, where's your psychiatrist now? Like, less than two months after you're out, you're already abducting a 12-year-old and going back to, like, okay, guy. Good point. Good point. Like, did they even, like, where is that guy? Like, huh, let me try my treatment again, you know? Or Yeah, exactly. So, of course, like like we said, he only served two years, and then they kicked him loose again. Because the same psychiatrist is probably like, oh, he's fine. He was just smoking pot. It's fine. So, (laughs) now it's this. this. I know. So, me too. So now it's the summer of 1977, and Rodney is out on parole, living with his mommy in L.A., and he decides to ask his parole officer if he could go back to New York to visit his friends and family for a while. You you know, the place that he was on the lam for three years, living under yeah. an alias and escaping Ugh. justice for te- Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to go back. Well, of course, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah, the parole officer okayed it. Yep. He said, yeah, that sounds fine. No problem. So Rod's back in New York using the John Berger alias again. God, so easy for him. Yeah. And this particular summer super sucks in New York. The son of Sam is at the end of his like two year reign of terror. So everybody's nerves are just fried and it's hotter than hell. And July 13th, there was some huge storm that had a bunch of like pretty aggressive lightning that struck like a power substation on the Hudson River and it, the entire city of New York lost power for an entire day. All of New York City went dark for a whole day. That's, I mean, a lot to say about that. You know, there's a lot of people who depend on that. And you know, I'm sure this guy took full advantage of just, you know, escaping and going in and out of wherever he wanted and just causing all kinds of problems. Yeah. Well, amongst everybody else, because when the power went out, the looting and the riots followed. Oh, I didn't even think about that for everybody else, but yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 
1,616 businesses were damaged or destroyed. Oh, wow. Over a 1,000 fires were responded to, which that's just the ones that were responded to. Right. 550 police officers were injured and 4,500 people were arrested. Oh, my God. It was out of control. Yeah. It was just chaos. It was just total chaos for all. It's like all because the lights didn't work. Like, what's going on here? You need Batman at a time like this. This is a total Batman thing. Yeah. So the next day on July 14th, after the lights came back on and everybody went back to North, they were like, oh, shit, we can't burn our city down. Um, a lady named Ellen Hover, who was 23 years old and she was a socialite, went missing. Her family was pretty wealthy. Her dad owned Ciro's Nightclub, which was like a huge rat pack nightclub. And Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. were Ellen's godfathers. Like her parents were pretty connected and she was pretty well off. And her disappearance was big news. But those first couple of days were just chaos because of all the other big news. A lot of big news going on right, right at the same time. So after Ellen's disappearance, Rodney suddenly is back home in L.A. He's like, oh, vacation's over. <laughs> well, time for, me, time for me to go home. <laughs> so he applied for and got a job at the L.A. Times as a typesetter under his real name. Again, Rodney Alcala. no background check was being done. None. So while they're investigating Ellen's disappearance, the police find her calendar and her, there was an appointment written in for the day that she went missing with a John Berger. Oh, yeah, and it took a few months, but finally they connected that alias to the former FBI 10 Most Wanted fugitive, Rodney Alcala, that was arrested using that name. So the FBI takes a quick flight to L.A. to have a conversation with Rodney. They're like, excuse me, can we talk? <laughs> he admits that he met with Ellen and they did a photo shoot, but that she was fine when he left. And since they don't have any proof that anything bad happened to Ellen, they leave L.A. with nothing. They know he did something to her, but they don't know what because they haven't found her. There's nothing. There's nothing else. I mean, man, I just yeah. feel like it was right there in front of them so many times. Like, again, kind of like Samuel Little, like he was on the on the hook so many times. And just kept yeah, getting let just off. skated. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's something about that because they say serial killers have like a low resting heartbeat and they don't like respond to like stressful situations the same way. Yeah. It's part of that like psychopath thing about them, huh? Yeah. So they can like be questioned by the FBI and just be like, dude, guys, I don't know what's going on. Sorry. You know, and like when most people that w- I'd freak out and I haven't even done anything. <laughs> Oh, that's why I would never take a lie detector test because I would just be a total of nerves the whole time. Yeah. So at this point, we're in late 1977, early 78, and L.A. was hit pretty hard with a string of murders that they were connecting to each other and calling the serial killer the Hillside Strangler. So this is like kind of going on at the same time. I know. L.A. during this time had so much going on. It's so crazy to think about. Yeah, Samuel Little could have been in and out during this time. We don't know. It's very true. Yeah, so since Rodney was a convicted sex offender and they had their eye on him for Ellen's disappearance in New York, they came to his mom's house and questioned him about the Hillside Strangler. And he had an alibi for a few of the Hillside Strangler murders, so they knew it wasn't him because they're like, well, he couldn't have done two and not six, you know, or whatever. But they brought him downtown and booked him anyways for possession of marijuana (laughs) because apparently there was weed in his house when they came to question him. I love that they can get him on pot charges, but they can't get him on like the actual felonies he's committing. But that's how you know they didn't like him. And they knew something was going on because they came to his house to question him and they saw weed and they took him to jail. Like, 
come on. I don't like him. I don't like him either. I don't like him either for the record. So Yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying like, you know, they didn't like him because they would under normal circumstances. They'd be like, hey, put that pot away. Like we're cops. Come on. Be, you know? be cool, man. Be cool. Yeah, exactly. So he's working for the L.A. Times who are reporting on the Strangler case and he's being questioned as a suspect in the Strangler case. And they still haven't figured it out. Working for like, the that's LA, wild. To yeah, me. exactly. He's like getting firsthand information about what's going on with the case. Like, and again, because he's so smart, like he's not involving the cops necessarily. So he's not like buddy buddy with them, but he's in with the news that is going to be yeah. putting that out there. Yeah, but also, aren't these people like investigative reporters? And they're reporting on the Strangler case, and they don't know that their own coworker is being questioned in the Strangler case. Like, that's not looking good for the LA Times. That's not a good look. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's not. So a few months later, he signs up for the dating game and he's actually picked to be bachelor number one for an episode under his real name. I think this just speaks so much to the way he's able to manipulate people. And again, how he's like so calm and cool under pressure and stuff, because like to go on something like that, like you got to be calm and cool. And, you know, like, hey, you know, when the camera turns on, like you got to be able to perform. Yeah. And he's totally able to. Yeah, I just, I have to imagine that background checks must have cost like a million dollars back then. Like, why nobody, not his work, not the dating game, like nobody with the, he's using his real name. I mean, I think the databases were still being built then, right? Like, I I don't know, but. No, I I saw an interview with an FBI agent when they asked him about that, because a reporter asked him, like, did those not exist back then? And they said, absolutely, records existed for that kind of stuff. There was a sex offender database. He was a registered sex offender. Yeah. Then what the hell? Like, why isn't he yeah. caught? Like, yeah. yeah. Like, that's what I'm saying. Background checks must have cost a fortune. That's the only thing I can think of is like, they must have been really expensive. So nobody did them if they didn't feel like they had to. I mean, I, I we could get into semantics about it, but it's probably just things like this hadn't happened. So they didn't need to do them, you know? And then yeah. once they came yeah. around, it was like, Oh, yeah, we should. Uh, That's true. Yeah. We should definitely do those now, huh? Yeah. Well, either way, he ends up on an episode of The Dating Game, and he's creepy as fuck, but he still wins. Which is also creepy as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the interesting part, too, is they introduced him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at, at the age of 13, fully developed. Yeah. Which is gross and creepy, but also wrong. His dad dipped way before he was 13. <laughs> I didn't think about that part of it. I mean, the dad thing just kind of yeah. left my mind. I was just thinking about like, that's un- like, why would you say that about a 13 year old? You know, like, I don't because everybody was gross. And dude, seriously, back then. It it's was so true. Pedophilia was like kind of OK. I know. Yeah. So when the bachelorette Cheryl meets him backstage after he wins, she's super put off. She's like, oh, no. This guy's not right. And she says that like the jokey sexual over the top innuendos that they were all doing for the show, because that's kind of how that show was. Right. They were super fake for the camera. So when everybody went backstage after like the other contestants, her, everybody was like normal, except Rodney. She said that she still got this vibe that he was really, really fake. Like it just creeped her out. And she said she left that day and she called the producers and said, I don't care what you tell him, but there's no chance in hell I'm going on that date. And, you know, there have been a lot of experts who have said that probably saved her life because. Yeah, 100 percent. And I mean, what like a twisted per like that played right into his hands, you know, again, 
something else just came right into his hands. And luckily she had the presence of mind to be like, no, I don't care if it hurts his feelings. I don't care. Like this guy's really uncomfortable and I don't like him. So I'm not going. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Good for her though. Absolutely. I mean, turns out she's like a super great judge of character, but yeah. Could you imagine her now too? Like her granddaughter brings some guy home for Christmas and she's like immediately, no, I don't like him. And everybody's just like, you better get rid of him. That's true. You probably have the ultimate like, like, judgment card there. Right? So after this dating game appearance in February of 1979, Rodney abducted a 15-year-old named Monique. And he abducted her under the ruse of taking pictures of her. That was always kind of his thing was he'd be like, oh, I'm a professional photographer and I can take pictures of you for your portfolio. Apparently back then, every single teenage girl wanted to be a model or an actress oh back then huh you don't think that's happening now with the tiktoks and the instagrams and stuff where people are doing the exact same thing oh i never thought of that people want to feel pretty you know boys and girls they want to feel desired they want to feel attractive to have somebody stop you just going about your business and be like hey i'm a photographer you captivated me i would love to take your photo i'm i'm taking a picture or i'm i'm stopping I am. <laughs> Probably my entire life I would stop for that. I'd be like, absolutely you can. <laughs> That's funny. I never thought of that. Like, now we just take our own pictures of ourselves so we don't need creepy photographers. That makes sense. I never thought of that. So, anyway, this is the first, like, a like first-person account we get of what he does to his victim. So, it's pretty bad. Like, just warning. We're not going to go into, like, super graphic detail, but it's pretty bad. So he drove Monique all the way to Banning, California, which is like a two-hour drive from where he picked her up. I don't even know where Banning is. It's out, like, off the 10, like, past Beaumont, like, on the way to the river. Oh, okay. It's, like, in the desert in the middle of nowhere. No wonder I don't know where it is. Yeah, it's, like, Beaumont, Banning, like, all that that area. You don't know any of that. Okay. We used to go motorcycle riding out there back in the day. Like, that's, it's the middle of nowhere. So he drove her all the way out there into the desert and he brutally assaulted her and tortured her for hours. He repeatedly sexually assaulted her. He would strangle her unconscious. Then when she would come to, he would beat and torture her again, strangle her unconscious again, and just keep doing this for hours all night long. You know, and that's kind of the sickness of not only him, but people who do this. It's not as much about the sexual piece as it is like the torture piece they love. And I guess that is the sexual piece for them, I guess. Yeah. For them. Right. And how, like how bizarre and disgusting, like I will say stuff like this. It's the one thing that makes me go, okay, maybe not the death penalty only because they're so sick. Like that is a next level thing. Do they belong in the streets? No. Are they better off off the earth? Yes. Probably. That's interesting that this is the one thing that makes you think that they, the death penalty, like, cause this is the one thing where I'm like, yes, death penalty. No, I get it. And, and I'm, I'm not opposed to it in this situation. I'm not, I'm really not, but yeah. I do take, I do listen to that and go, this guy is so sick. Does he deserve to be amongst the people? Absolutely not. But he is so disturbed. Like I, but that's the thing is he's not sick. I think he is. He's doing do this for of... his own sexual gratification. Like, this is how he gets off. I, I understand. But to be able to do that kind of stuff, like, he's got to be sick. I just think it's interesting that that's where you're, like, because the same events cause you to be like, oh, he's sick. He shouldn't be put to death. And the same events cause me to be like, we need to not let him steal oxygen from other <laughs> anymore. 
I, that's kind of weird. Well, I don't disagree with that either. Like I'm, I really am kind of like, I see both sides of it, but I'm kind of like, dude, this guy's so sick. Like we just, I don't know. He is better off dead. I, I completely agree with that. And probably, <laughs> probably, well, and probably if I had anything to do with any of these victims, I'd probably assume that as well. So yeah, I don't know. I try to see the, like the other side of it, but really like Rodney Alcala was a disgusting person. And again, that's putting it mildly. It really is. Well, yeah, because like we were talking about with, with Monique's case, I mean, she's the first person who could tell us firsthand because luckily she does survive, but barely. And just the amount of torture and brutality that he showed her, just no mercy at all. Is it's just unbelievable. It is. It's you know, disgusting. like it's really and we're like I said, we're not gonna go into every little detail that he did to her because it's ridiculous. But just with the strangling her, bringing her back, strangling her, torturing, like, that's unbelievable. But finally, one time when she woke up from being unconscious, he was kind of, like, away from her a little bit, and she just had this instinct to connect with him to survive. And she came up with a, a thing, and she just started talking to him, and she pretended like she was okay with what he did to her. And it was probably like her body's own response to be like, he's about to actually kill me. Yeah. Like he's done with me. He's almost over it. I could tell, you know. So she told him like, hey, can we not tell anybody about what you did to me or about what we did? She made it seem like they did it together. And she connected with him and it worked. He agreed to not tell anybody. He agreed to take her back to his apartment to get let her get cleaned up before he dropped her off. He untied her. They got back in the car and they started heading back to town. They stopped at a gas station somewhere to use the restroom and she jumped out of the car and ran for her life to like a motel next door and they called the police and Rodney was arrested. I mean, luckily she has the presence of mind enough to manipulate him and he hooked, he bit it hook, line, and sinker. At 15. Yeah. Like this girl was smart. She was super smart. I wonder if this though, like was the connection he was hoping to have with somebody. And like, he never had it before, obviously. So he maybe thought this could go further, you know? No, because people with antisocial personality disorder can't make connections with people. What happened here is he realized like, oh, I don't have to worry about cleaning up a body. She's not going to tell anybody. Oh, well. Because then... it's not about the killing for, for some people. Like they say with Rodney, it's not about the killing. It's about everything that leads up to the killing. The killing is just something he has to do so that he doesn't get caught. Gotcha. Or it's just like a result of his sexual stuff went too far. Do you I know see. what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I see. So because she was like, look, let's not tell anybody. He's like, sweet. Now I don't have to worry about this. He was just doing it to get his rocks off. Like, Yeah. So somehow a judge granted him $10,000 bail for this sexual assault charge and arrest. What the hell? Like he's getting more time for pot than he is for like hurting little girls. Yeah, this is his third underage girl that he has abducted and and attacked. The second one he sexually assaulted. And to make matters worse, his mom posted his bail to get out. Yeah. Like, of all the people to not do that, you would think a woman yeah. would be like, nah. But she was like, all right. I mean, I don't know if she was afraid of him or what, but yeah, I when I heard that, I was just like, man, like, lady, come on. Yep. So June of 1979, he's out on bail and he's trolling the beach and he comes across two 12-year-old girls, oh, Bridget God. and Robin. Yeah. 
God, quit just he needs to be in jail and just left there to die. He does or t- or yeah. kill him. I don't care anymore. I'm I'm over this guy. Yeah. So he's out on bail and he comes across Robin and Bridget, 12-year-olds on the beach, and he starts taking their picture. And they're doing cartwheels and posing for these pictures until Bridget's neighbor, who was an adult, her name is Jackie, she sees them and she's like, mm, that looks sketch. I'm going to go see what's going on here. And she walks up and she's like, can I help you? Like, why are you taking pictures of 12-year-olds? And he just ran away. Like in the interview that I saw with her, she said that you could literally see smoke coming off of his dress shoes as he ran. He like so obviously he was not wanting to be seen taking pictures of little girls. It's like the only thing he's done that made sense. <laughs> you know, like he ran away from <laughs> yeah, like, such a bad situation. Yeah. Yeah. So the girls head back to Bridget's because Robin has to be at her ballet studio um, because she has a job. She's only 12, but she answers the phones at her ballet studio to give like a discount on her ballet lessons. So she might be like running behind. And since they just had this like really interesting interaction, Bridget tells Robin to take her bike so that she could get to the ballet studio faster. So Bridget gives Robin her bike and she leaves. Now, Robin Samso never shows back up at the ballet studio that day. So the ballet studio calls Marianne, who's Robin's mom, and she knew immediately something was wrong. Like Robin was very, I don't know, for a 12-year-old, she was very responsible. I mean, she had a job at 12. I didn't have a job at 12. So the search was on for Robin. Her mom and her siblings searched all afternoon for her, like all of her friends' houses, anywhere she could. They retraced her steps, all that stuff. By dark, when they couldn't find her, they were like, we got a reporter missing. They called the police. And this turns into kind of a huge deal because this was one of the first child abductions in Huntington Beach. Like, really? Ever. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm, I kind of was looking it up and I don't know if they've had very many since then either. Just kind of surprising. I mean, it's a beach, you know, it, you'd think it'd be kind of yeah. easy to snag a kid off of the beach or the pier or Main Street or something. Yeah. So, of course, the Huntington Beach police checked the usual suspects like her dad you know, her biological father, which it wasn't him, and local creeps and sex offenders, all that kind of stuff, but there's no leads. So the police interview Bridget about what they did that day, and Bridget describes the photographer to a sketch artist, and she explains this guy was taking our picture, and then when Jackie came up, he got all creeped out and he ran away. So this sketch that she describes to the sketch artist would turn out to be super accurate. Because the hero, Donald Haynes, from the Tally Shapiro attack, remember the guy who followed them? Could never forget to Rodney's him. apartment. Oh, yeah. Called in a tip about Rodney. Again? Yes. He saw this sketch that Bridget had described to the HB police department. And he was like, hey, that looks like this other guy that attacked this other little girl that, <laughs> like, this is weird. Did he know his name at that point? Did yeah. He? Okay, he did. I didn't know if, like, I'm sure, I knew police did. I didn't know if he knew the guy's name. Yeah, of course. And then when Rodney Alcala's parole officer saw the sketch, he also called in a tip the same day as the other guy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So the Huntington Beach police were like, okay, well, now we have a suspect. Yeah. And when Rodney saw the sketch, he knew. He's like, oh, shit, that was a lot like me. (laughs) So he chemically straightened his helmet hair. He cut his hair. And surprisingly, he has a girlfriend at this time, like a that he's been seeing for a few months, which is not super serious for him, but for her, she thinks it is. And her name is Beth. 
And she recalls how surprising it was to see him with straight hair and then just a couple days later to cut it off because he was so obsessed with himself and like obsessed with his hair. And I mean, we know this now, but he has iconically long curly hair, you know, like when you see him in court, you see pictures of him, you know, it's Rodney Alcala because he always, 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 even into his later years had long, honestly, really nice curly hair. Yeah. This girlfriend also is the one that told police that Rodney Alcala had recently removed the carpet in his car because he spilled gas in there and it stunk. Okay. So this isn't looking good, but the dots aren't connecting for Beth quite yet. (laughs) She's just kind of like, oh, my boyfriend's doing a lot of weird things, you know. And he even tells her he's relocating out of state and wants her to go with him because he was he was planning on leaving, you know. Yeah, he needs to. Yeah, so she'll she'll be surprised pretty soon, though, because he doesn't ever get a chance to. Before. <laughs> like, he takes a trip. He tells her he's going to Dallas to scope out places for them to live and stuff. But really, he's going up to Seattle to stash secret storage units. It's the whole thing. So now the police are looking at Rodney pretty hard because they've had a couple of tips about him. And a weird little fact, a detective went home that night after the tips about Rodney came in and he turned on his TV and they were airing a replay of Rodney's dating game episode. Wow. So he got to see what Rodney looked like, like on video. He was like, oh my God, this is the guy we're looking for. Like, that's his name. That's the, he looks like the sketch, everything. So they went to the production company and got a copy of Rodney's taping so that all the cops could go watch the creepy episode. Oh, like, isn't that random? That's like, so weird. The day that tip got called in, he went in and w- he went home and watched a re-airing of that episode. Yeah, what a bizarre, like a yeah, what a bizarre coincidence. Yeah. So the police are searching everywhere for Robin and they still haven't found her, but they do, they are zoning in on Rodney as a suspect. And then a couple weeks go by and on July 2nd, near mile marker 11 in Chantry Flats, which is like a section of the Angeles National Forest, that's right by your house, right? Yeah, it's actually right very close to my house. And I, and when I knew we were doing this, I drove up there and because of mudslides and fire warnings and stuff like that most of it's closed but i kind of drove up to like where it start where it starts in like the neighborhood because it starts in like a neighborhood and then there's like a path to go up i'm really not because of this case just in general it's been a hike i've been wanting to do for a long time and now there's a little bit more to it too so i'll uh i'll right. re- i'll report back once i do it so it's like a wooded area right like that's it's yeah. like a foresty mountain area yeah it's at so the, it's at the cup- base of mount wilson yeah So on July 2nd, a couple of forest firefighters named Dana and William come across some bones that William had seen a few days before and assumed they were deer bones, like, because that's pretty normal to find animal activity. But today, he tossed one of the bones to Dana, and she got real upset. She looked super sick. She turned, like, ghost white. And when he looked closer, he realized that they looked like they could be human, and he just, like, picked them up and was, like, showing them to her. So they call the police, and the police come and retrieve what's left of these bones, but it wasn't a full skeleton because the animal predation was super extreme. So identifying these bones would take a few days, but when they finally do, it turns out to be the bones of 12-year-old Robin Samson, who's been missing. It's absolutely heartbreaking, you know, like, and yeah, is this his first victim that's actually been killed? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. I was trying to remember all of them in my head, and I didn't think any of them had actually died, but unfortunately, Robin Samso did. Okay. Well, technically, it's the first one that we know of. Okay. Yeah. 
So the most frustrating part of this story is Dana Crappa, the forest firefighter who found the bones, because her story would change a bunch of times Why? over the course of this. Um, she finally lands on this other story that's going to completely piss you off and ultimately <laughs> lead to a lot of legal issues at trial. So we'll get into it in the trial section. But just remember, Dana, Dana and William are the people who found her bones. All right. It's important to remember who she is. Because she says the night that Robin went missing, she saw a man matching Rodney's description parked at mile marker 11, leading a young blonde girl into the woods. And she was sure of his car and that was, that it was him and Robin, but it would take her like months to come up with this story. And then she says that she thought it was weird, but she didn't investigate. But then she says she went back to that spot at a later date and she found Robin's body and she said that she found a knife and then the next time she says she found shell casings but she threw those away but she was so traumatized she convinced herself that she didn't see what she thought she saw and never told anybody and she said that that robin's body smelled and was cut up pretty bad and if she was telling the truth that would have been helpful like for a <laughs> cause of death and a timeline yeah but dana decided that it was too traumatizing for her to tell anybody so she kept that to herself and she would then later to like change her testimony altogether and say she doesn't remember anything. So Jeez. by the time Robin's body was found by a decent human being who decided to call the police, she was skeletal. So there was almost no physical evidence. And her mother had to wait extra days in agony to confirm her identity through dental records. And now she'll never know her baby's cause of death because this girl didn't call it in. So... This shouldn't have to be said, but if you find a murdered child's body, obviously you need to tell the truth and you need to, like, report it right away. <laughs> Urgently. Yeah. I would this, definitely- uh, This, like, super bothered me. Like, I know she was yeah, she was only 20 years old and stuff, but it's like, you know when you find something like this, you have to call the police. Like, yeah. You know that. Yeah. I mean, how do you not? Like, it's over your head. If you find something like that, it's got to be like, huh, I'm not qualified for this. Let's call somebody else who is. Yeah. Like, it has to be. Yeah. So, anyways, we'll get to that at the trial because that lights me up. <laughs> so, the police arrest Rodney and they search his mommy's house where they find a lot of pictures of young women and young girls and a couple of boys. So, they also find some paperwork for a storage unit in Seattle that he had rented after Robin Samso's disappearance. But their warrant didn't cover paperwork. So, thankfully, an officer brought a pen and a piece of paper and he wrote the info down. Because after Rodney was in jail, he asked his sister to go get rid of his storage unit and the things in it. But because this conversation was recorded because he was in jail, yeah. the investigators are like, oh, that must be important. So they book it to Seattle and beat her there. Is there no way that they can just like tell her like, hey, hang on, we need to do something like, you know what I mean? Like, did they have to get there before her? Like, wasn't it obvious that like they were going to... Well, they had to get there before she got rid of all the shit in his storage unit like he was asking her to do. Well, yeah, no, I know. But, like, can't the police tell his sister, like, hey, you're actually not going to go because everything I've heard is they were trying to beat her there. Couldn't they just tell her, like, hey, you're not going? Well, yeah, but what's to stop her from going anyway? They can't forcibly stop her from going. They, I'm, just, I'm a little surprised that they can't, like, now they have, like, a reason they have probable cause to you know think that there's something there Although they have probable cause for them to go search the storage unit but there's nothing illegal been done yet so if she goes up there and gets rid of everything she didn't do anything illegal gotcha okay 
So when the Huntington Beach investigators open the storage unit, they find hundreds or thousands of pictures of young girls and boys in very sexually explicit positions. Most of them are so sexually explicit, they have never been able to even release most of these photos. I think that's a good thing. You know, I don't think we need to see how sexually explicit they were on such young kids. Well, we'll get into that later because we need to see these people because we need to identify them. But (sighs) I mean, I mean, for the public, I mean, for the public, like, yeah, identify them. Yeah, the public needs to identify them. The cops don't know who they are. That's a huge part of this story is that there's only 120 photos out of thousands that they've been able to release to the public. Isn't that gross? I mean, yeah, it's all gross. This whole thing is gross. I hate Rodney. I'll call it. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. you and I both. We talked about this case like before we recorded, and like we knew it, and we thought, at least I thought I knew it pretty well, but I forgot how like he's vile. He really is. Yep. So they find all these sexually explicit pictures, but they also find a small jewelry pouch, and when they open it, there was a bunch of pairs of earrings in it. And this would be pretty important because one pair of gold studs would be identified later by Robin's mom as Robin's. And she wasn't wrong because there was like cut marks on them from where she cut like a piece of them off because they were like dangly earrings or whatever. So she used nippers to like nip a piece of them off. And those cut marks you could see. So she's like, I know these are her earrings. Well, if I remember correctly. They were actually her mom's earrings. Okay, that's what I was going to say. They were actually her mom's earrings. And so her mom was like, no, I absolutely know what these look like. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, yeah, because her mom was the one who clipped the piece off. Right, okay. And then Robin just used to borrow those earrings from her. Right, okay, just want to make sure. Yeah, so this is when investigators really, really start to think that Rodney is a serial killer. Because it was all adding up. Tolly, Julie, Robin, Monique, Ellen in New York, the one that went missing, the socialite. Uh huh. Because at this point, they'd found her body. So they knew she was dead. But it was skeletal, so there wasn't much they could get from it. Everything was pointing towards him being a serial killer and these earrings being like what he would take from his. Like they were like, if Robin's earrings are in here, who are all these other earrings? Right. You know, like, uh oh. Right around this time is also when Dana Crappa's story started changing. That's what I was telling you about when she found the body and what she saw back and forth about, oh, I saw Rodney. Oh, I didn't see Rodney. Oh, I saw Robin. Oh, I didn't see Robin. And then she even says that she found the body before it was skeletal, but that she just like blocked it out of her mind. And she gives all these weird like accounts of what she saw. It was a total mess. So they end up hypnotizing her. The police hypnotizing her no i heard you i was listening i was really interested to hear how it goes from here because i mean (laughs) okay yeah well they finally got a story out of her but who knows if it was right i mean they hypnotized her yeah but who knows if what her story said was right the first i mean she's she has no credibility i mean everything she said is either a lie or not a lie and you don't know which one's which yeah her story's going down the crappa yeah so at this time alcala was also petitioning the court to not allow his prior criminal record at trial like when he goes to trial for robin he doesn't want his history in the trial of course he doesn't yeah but the court says fuck you we're gonna tell them that because it's so similar to what happened here like it shows a pattern yeah so that's allowed and thank god 
because they had no physical evidence. It was all circumstantial. And one eyewitness that changed her story a dozen times and the police had to hypnotize her to get her to tell the same story twice. Yeah. Because Robin's bones were skeletal. There was no physical evidence except the earrings in the storage unit. So the trial starts and it's a mess, as usual. He's being a total douchebag, not being bothered by this whole thing. He's just acting like nothing's the matter. He's just calm, cool, and collected. Dana Crappa's testimony was shaky at best. And Robin's mom brings a gun to court because she's given interviews since that said that she wanted to shoot him right there on the spot. We've seen it happen before. Yeah. She decided, though, to wait and see if he would be convicted. Because if he was convicted, she was going to be like, okay, it's fine. And if he wasn't convicted, she was going to shoot him. So this thing, this this trial is kind of a mess. But luckily, they had Bridget's testimony that she was with Robin on the beach when Rodney was taking their picture and stuff like that. They had Jackie, the neighbor, that ran him off. Robin's mom testified about the marks on the earrings when she clipped them, and they showed, like, a zoomed-in picture of the clip marks. So this goes on for, like, two long months. Then it goes to the jury. The jury comes back with a conviction, and Rodney sentenced to death. I'll take it. Yep. So Robin's mom didn't have to shoot him, and he's taken to San Quentin to rot forever. Fair enough. I'll take it. Yeah. I think everybody would have taken it. (laughs) Yeah, they would have. Yeah. But it doesn't end there, unfortunately. It never does. I know. I don't understand how he's so slippery. Like, it's pretty obvious what the kind of person he's doing. It's He's doing it over and over again. Like, you should be able to grab him and keep him. Yep. So after his death sentence, he was also convicted of Monique's sexual assault, the girl who talked herself out of getting murdered. And he was sentenced to nine years in prison for that, which is kind of like, okay, drop in the bucket. You have a death sentence. So everybody thought we were done with Rodney's shit. He's on San Quentin, on death row, rotting, goodbye. Except he keeps suing the state for, like, stupid stuff. Obviously, he's doing the automatic appeals for his death sentence, which is annoying enough. But he even files lawsuits for them, like, not feeding him low-fat food. Oh, kind of like that that insurrectionist who who had to get, like, what, a vegan diet or something like that? Remember? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Remember the the insurrectionist who uh, was wearing, like, the... The hat with the with the horns on his head. Do you remember that guy? Guy who yeah. stormed the Capitol. His mom ended up suing the state because he had to have like a special vegan or vegetarian diet or something like that. Oh, and they ha- they had yeah, and they had to like oblige. Well, I think that's ridiculous. But <laughs> don't we all? I think all that should. I mean, I I get food allergies, but like food preferences. Yeah, no. right. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Not when you're a criminal. Like, if you haven't been convicted yet, maybe. Like, if you're in jail, wait, because you're technically innocent. Until... But this guy's got a death sentence. Like, feed him whatever you want to feed him. Feed him cat food. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't. So, four years later, four years of this, of Rodney just suing the state for stupid shit, being annoying, appealing his death sentence. Four years later, in 1984, the California Supreme Court overturned his conviction. And granted him a new trial. I mean, what was the basis for them throwing it out and starting all over again? They said that his earlier crimes should not have been admitted. How? Like, (laughs) they tie directly and talk about directly how this guy is. Like, yeah. What do you like? Yeah. Why? Because the Supreme Court at this time under the it's a judge. I forget her name. They were super anti-death penalty. 
So they overturned all 64 death sentences, like death sentence appeals that were presented to them at this time. And they found some nitpicky way to overturn them just because they were anti-death penalty. So they wanted to go back to court and then this person get a different sentence. Gotcha. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Makes sense. I don't think it's right, but it makes sense. No, it's not right. It's super big waste of money. So now the prosecution was really worried, though, because the prior crimes were kind of a huge deal in the first trial. Like, if the jury doesn't know about that, then all they have is Dana Krapa's flip-flopping, hypnotized testimony and a pair of earrings. Yeah, they have nothing else to go off of. Yeah. But two years later, in 86, they decide everything else is still there. I mean, the earrings, no alibi, his changing appearances, you know, it's all circumstantial, but it's all still there. So they retry him. And this new trial was kind of a mess, too. And as soon as the trial started, Dana Crappa, like, screwed shit up again. This time, she didn't flip-flop or change her story and all that stuff or get important details wrong or anything like that. Now she goes to the judge and says, I don't remember anything. Oh, my God. How can you not remember anything after this? You testify in court. Go back to the transcript yeah. and read it. Yeah. And the, and she's like, I want to be dismissed. And the judge is like, uh, no way. What? Yeah. Like, do you not remember anything or do you not want to remember anything? Yeah. Because like, those are two different things, you know. After this back and forth, the judge had to rule that she was unfit mentally to testify. Like, she couldn't testify. So now they don't even have Dana Crappa. <laughs> this is going down the Crappa again. Yeah. So the defense was like, sweet. And the prosecution was livid. Sure. So they go back and forth about this, but the judge finally ruled that since she was unavailable mentally to testify, they could use her testimony from the first trial so they could read it into evidence. So the defense is like, no way, Jose. And the judge is like, yeah, I'm the boss. That's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. So the stenographer reads Dana Krapa's testimony into evidence, which actually worked out better for the prosecution because... Dana was a shit witness. Yeah. Like she was super shaky and unconfident on the stand, but the stenographer reading what she was saying wasn't shaky and unconfident, you know? Oh, yeah. So it actually worked out better. I didn't even think about the way that things are said. And, yeah. you know, a stenographer yeah. who's just like, yeah, I'm confident in this. I'll read it. That makes total sense. I love that. Yeah. It's not legal and it's going to be a problem later, but it's pretty cool. So. Rodney's defense was literally just them playing the video of the dating game episode. And everybody's like, what is, how is this your defense? What are you doing? And he's like, well, I wanted to show you guys that I wore earrings. Like, those aren't Robin's earrings. Those are my earrings. And it's like, you can't even see your earrings. <laughs> yeah, your hair's long. <laughs> so it was just like a big joke. Like, he just wanted to show people he was on the dating game, I think. Like, it was weird. I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, he's a narcissist. Obviously. Yeah. So he's, 100%. look what I, look guys, I was famous for, for 10 minutes. Totally. So this goes on until May of 86 and the jury takes four days to deliberate and they come back guilty on all counts. I like that. Yep. So during the penalty phase, his prior crimes can be admitted. During the guilt phase, they couldn't, but now that he's been convicted now to decide the penalty, they can talk about his prior crimes. Oh, seems odd, but okay. I'm glad that they can. Yeah, because it shows like a pattern in history, So, which you can't show to get a fair trial to, for the guilt phase. But now that he's been found guilty, now they want to 
sentence him fairly so they get to show all the shitty things he's done. Sure. So the prosecution pulls out of Ace, though, because they call grown-up Tally Shapiro to the stand. Oh, wow. That is an Ace card. Yeah. And she gets to finally testify against him about what he did to her like 18 years before. Mm. And she gets to finally confront him. Like, cause she never got to testify at her own trial. Unreal. Yeah. Which I don't, that had to be like super hard and maybe super gratifying for her at the yeah. same time. Like, as an, that's got to be. As an adult, being yeah. able to tell the person who, you know, caused her so much pain, I'm sure it was, it was probably a healing moment for her. Yeah. I'm sure it was probably really difficult, but it was also, oh, had yeah. to be great. I would venture to guess she looked forward to it you know like it's been something on her mind it's probably something she's thought about not necessarily what happened to her but like getting him you know i confronting him confronting him yeah yeah. and having that chance i bet that that was probably a very very like sweet feeling for her yeah so she was a great witness obviously because she could say everything rodney did to her and how it affected the rest of her life so far Then after Tally Shapiro testified, Rodney's mother testified, pretty much begging the jury to save his life, not for him, but for her, which is a valid argument. Like, that's a better argument than saving it for him, because it's like, fuck him. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, it's honestly, it's the first decent thing he's done in this entire story. What? Asking to save his, to save his life for his mother. His mom is asking oh. for the jury to save his life for her. Oh, not for oh, yeah. Well, then he's still scum. Okay. Yeah, which was genius, though, on her part. Yeah. Because she's not begging for them to give him mercy. She's begging for her. Totally. You know, like, please have mercy on me. Like, that was pretty smart. And his defense in this penalty phase, like, to not, you know, to save his life. His defense was like, yeah, I'm a bad guy. I'm a rapist and a child molester, but I didn't do this one. Like, I'm innocent <laughs> of this one. So I shouldn't get a death sentence, like, because just in case I'm innocent. That's literally his defense. Is I didn't do this one. Yeah. I know. It's a terrible defense. <laughs> and, like, how does it, you know, stand yeah. up? Well, he's sentenced to death a second time, so <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll take that then. Yeah. So Rodney's not tripping, though, because California hasn't carried out an execution since 1967. And at this point, we're in 1986. So it's been a long time since they've executed anybody. Yeah, he's feeling pretty good. Yeah, he got a death sentence, but he's not worried about getting actually executed. So he's sent back to his cushy single-person cell in San Quentin with his color TV and starts appealing and suing the state and all this stuff. He's just a menace. And then in 1992... So now we're eight years later. California started executing people again, just like out of nowhere. Oh, we'll just start that up again, huh? Yeah. And all the people they were executing were sentenced to death the same year as Rodney or after. Oh, So now he's sweating bullets because every person that they sentenced to death was like 79, 80, 81, 79, you know. So he's sweating bullets. And he actually writes some stupid self-published book called you the jury and he talks about how he's innocent and blah blah blah. you could buy it it's stupid okay yeah don't read it it's dumb <laughs> i wasn't planning on it yeah i mean i guess it's well written he's smart but it's bullshit anyway him and his lawyers also bombard the california legal system with lawsuits and appeals after appeals after appeals because if the appeals are pending they can't execute you know until all of the appeals are exhausted 
So they just throw everything at the wall, hoping something will stick or it'll just take forever. And in 2001, one of these appeals works. His verdict is overturned again because of Dana Krapa's testimony. Again? Well, the second time it was overturned because of his prior acts being admitted when they shouldn't have. This time it was overturned again, but this time it was because of Dana Krapa's testimony. Gosh. Well, this Dana Krapa lady, like she just crapped all over the entire investigation over and over and over again. Like, get out of the way. If you're not going to help, then just go away. Yep. So how come because of her testimony, though? Did they think she was lying or what was it? Well, they argued that because her testimony was read into evidence yeah. in court, they didn't get the chance to cross-examine her. And that's a legal right. Confront your accuser. But didn't they cross-examine her during the first time? Yes, but that was the first lawyer and the first trial. Oh, my this God. This trial was different because, well, this trial, was, I, I, to be honest with you, it's legal. This should have been overturned. Like, that should have never been allowed for them to read it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I hate Rodney Alcala, so <laughs> glad, he got, <laughs> yeah. glad he got convicted. But they should have never done that. They should have never read that in because you have a right to confront your accuser. So if they're reading a statement from somebody and he can't ask questions, like, that's just grounds for appeals later. Yeah. All right. Fair. Which it worked. So the court is ordered to retry Rodney within 120 days or let him out of prison. Because he's only in prison for Robin Samso's murder. And it just got overturned. Well, you got some work to do. Get to work. Yeah, because by this point, he served his nine years for Monique. So it's bad. Yeah, it's really bad. This was a huge deal. And I remember this being on the news and everything, like where we grew up and like on the cover of like magazines and stuff. Because I remember thinking, like, who's that ugly, long-haired guy? You know, because he was all over everything. Because it was a big deal because everybody knew he was a serial killer, but he'd never been tied to anything except Robin Samso, and now he might get out of prison. Yeah. Because his conviction was overturned. So it was like, they knew he was a serial killer and the time was running out. I remember this being kind of a big deal. But the state appealed the ruling. So that bought them some time, like more than 120 days. But they still had to prepare to take him to trial again like in the next couple of years by the time this was all sorted out. So in 2002, while they're getting ready to retry him in case their appeal doesn't work, the state starts taking death row inmates' DNA because CODIS didn't exist before this. Right. But then laws are passed and things like that, so they're starting to like collect DNA from inmates, and, and they start with death row inmates, and they want to make sure they're not involved in other crimes and stuff. So Rodney fights this super hard. Like, he does not want to give up his DNA. But eventually, <laughs> he has to because it's the rules. No surprise there, huh? Yeah. And they run it. And in June of 2003, Matt Murphy, who's the DA in Orange County, was getting ready to, to retry Rodney Alcala in the Robin Samso case when Rodney's DNA hit on a cold case from L.A. Hell yeah! Get him again! Yeah. And they were like, we knew it. We knew he was a murderer. Like, we knew he was a serial killer. So Georgia Wickstead was found murdered in her apartment in Malibu in December of 77. So this is after he got back from New York when he went on his little vacate in New York and then Ellen went missing. Right. It was after he got back. And this is not looking good for Rodney because this is death penalty eligible too. Because in California, there has to be special circumstances to be eligible for the death penalty like another felony committed during the murder or something so because he broke into her apartment it was robbery so 
it was death penalty eligible. Well, good. I mean, just like Robin Samso, the kidnapping charge is what made him death penalty eligible. So the LADA files charges against Rodney, which is like a huge relief because if something happens at this retrial for Robin Samso, they still got him with DNA for Georgia Wixton. But that summer turns out to pretty much suck for Rodney, but was good <laughs> for everybody else because it was confirmed that he was a serial killer, like everybody thought. Before he would end up going to retrial for Robin Samso, his DNA would hit on another three L.A. cold cases, so four in total. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Jill Barcombe was an 18-year-old girl from New York and had only been in L.A. a couple of weeks when she was found in November of 77 in a ravine in L.A. She'd been beaten and strangled and had bite marks all over her body. And at first, she was thought to be a hillside strangler victim. But when Bianchi and Bono were caught for the hillside strangler murders, they said they didn't know, like, she wasn't one of their, like, they admitted to the ones that they did. And they said she was not one of their victims. So it, the case went cold when it wasn't them. Right. So, and side note, her body was found in front of Marlon Brando's house. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Wow. It was found like in a ravine off of Mulholland, like that his house overlooked that ravine. Oh, I see. He was not a suspect, though. That makes sense, although he could have been. He was the godfather. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Charlotte Lamb was a legal secretary from Santa Monica. And in June of 1978, her body was found in the laundry room of an apartment complex in El Segundo. She'd been found naked and posed. She was sexually assaulted and strangled, and her DNA was found on a post of an earring in Rodney's earring collection. Wow. Which confirmed what they always had thought was those were souvenirs. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever you want to call them. Those were trophies from his murders. Crazy. like Just like the investigators thought. That's one thing I've never really understood about killers in general like why would you hang on to something you know like why why do you need that little memento like so they can relive it yeah i know why that's why i know why (laughs) but it's like why do you want to you sicko but that's why because they're sickos because they want to yeah (laughs) yeah so that's crazy 25 years later and they still found 0.6 nanograms of DNA on her earring in his collection. I love it. And I love what they're doing with DNA now. Like, shout out to Jared and the MVAC because they're solving things that we never thought we'd be able to before. Yeah. Like, this was 20 years ago now. 2003. I mean, and they still found DNA on her ear. Could you imagine what they could find now? Un- like, crazy. yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. So, the fourth LA victim was Jill Parento. And her naked body was found in her Burbank apartment in June of 1979, just a week before Robin Samso was abducted. Oh, wow. So zero cooling off period almost. Yeah. So before they go to trial for Robin Samso, the Orange County DA, Matt Murphy, and the LA DA, Steve Cooley, decide that they're going to try him together for the LA cases and the Samso case in Orange County. They're going to combine it. Because it made the Robin Samso trial stronger because there was DNA in the four L.A. cases. Right. And there was no DNA in Robin's case. So it makes sense. Plus, saves the state money. They just do it all at once. Plus, he did it. So, you know. Of course. But Rodney's attorneys, of course, are like, no, thank you. We'd like to go at him separately. We'd like to do the Robin Samso and then we'd like to do the L.A. And the judge says, yeah, no, that's a waste of time. We're going to do it all at once. 
then Rodney's attorneys appeal that decision. But by the time it's all said and done, Rodney makes another interesting move. He motions to fire his attorneys and represent himself, which the state fights because he could appeal later that he had incompetent representation. or That's like the number one reason for appeal is that your lawyers suck, you know? Yeah. But he was just stalling because everything I just told you in eight seconds took like eight years in real time to get all sorted out. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. So by 2010, his third trial for Robin Samso's murder and his first trial for Jill Barcom, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento's murders finally starts. So remember in 2001, they gave him 120 days to retry him. It took nine years to actually go to court. Oh my God. That's crazy. That's so crazy. Yeah, and when it does start, it's nonstop shenanigans. Like, poor Matt Murphy has to treat Rodney like a professional because he's acting as his own attorney, so they have to, like, speak to each other. (laughs) And the whole thing is like a shit show. Um, No doubt about that. So Gina Satriani is trying him for the L.A. murder. She's the DA for L.A., and she's trying him with Matt Murphy for Robin Samso. And Gina put on a great case for the four L.A. homicides, and... The DNA was solid, but Rodney just kind of let her like he didn't even ask a lot of cross-examination questions of the witnesses. Like the only thing he would ask the witnesses was, did she wear earrings? And what was the answer? I mean, in almost every situation, it was like, well, yeah, you fucking took him, you jackass. <laughs> like, but that it was just weird. That was the only thing he was asking. Like he wasn't putting on any kind of defense for the L.A. homicide. He had nothing to go on. Yeah. Well, he had no defense. Yeah. Right. So he was just being a creep and just kept asking, did you wear earrings? Did you wear earrings? It's like, stop it. <laughs> so he's confident as shit, even when he's wrong. He's like cool, calm, collected. And this asshole, because he represented himself, gets to ask witnesses direct questions. The best, though, is when he asks himself questions, when he puts himself on on the stand. Yeah, but this is bullshit. He gets to ask Robin's mother direct que- Like, he gets to put her mother on the stand And ask her questions. Yeah, I know. Like, he asked her if Robin was wearing earrings that day, and she got right in his face, and she's like, you know she was. Good. You know, I mean, she should have done more more than that. I'm sure she wished she could have, too. Yeah. Well, I bet at this time she wishes she would have shot him way back 30 years ago (laughs) at that first trial. That's kind of what I was thinking, too. She's like, damn it. Yeah. But this questioning was actually a pretty bad look for Rodney, because just like we think it's disgusting that he was able to question Robin Samso's mom, the jury also thought it was icky. Oh, good. They were like, ew, this is not a good look. Because he was literally calling a murder victim's mother a liar. Yeah. Either way, Rodney put on a terrible defense, and the prosecution let everything he asked for in. Like, they didn't object to anything because they wanted zero grounds for him to be able to appeal. I think that's pretty smart. Like, let's let's just get it out there. He's only going to dig his own grave. And like I said, he also only really defended himself for Robin. He just kind of ignored the other four. Like he was just like, (laughs) he acted like it didn't even exist. Like never even mentioned them in his opening statement. Nothing. Yeah. He was way over his head, even though he was smart. He wasn't smart enough. No. So he played some stupid homemade movie about how he was at Knott's Berry farm when Robin was abducted, which was stupid. And he questioned witnesses about random things that had nothing to do with the date Robin was abducted. Like, his ex-girlfriend, Beth, he, like, called her to the stand, and then he talked about himself in the third person, was like, when did you start dating Rodney, and blah, blah, blah. It was like, you are Rodney, you dumbass. <laughs> so it's all yucky and gross, and he plays this episode of the dating game again. It's got to. This time, he didn't even give a reason why, he just played it. 
He was just like, here, watch this for a minute. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to take a smoke break or something. Yeah, take a recess and watch me on TV. Hang on. And then your favorite part about this whole case, Rodney calls Rodney <laughs> to the stand. It, this is my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know why you're laughing because Rodney calls yeah. Rodney to the stand and then talks in different voices <laughs> while he's doing it. Like... As he's not the, even like in the third person, no. he talks in different voice. Yeah, he like dips, like you know, dips his voice to like a lower octave, kind of like mine starting to become. I'm getting tired of talking, but yeah, um, he dips it down to like a lower octave and like answers it like in his regular voice. And I am positive everybody around is just going like, "What he just do? What? Yeah, what, what is going on? What happened here? What? Yeah, that's it's nutty." Yeah, he even objected to his own questions at some points. <laughs> like, didn't Amber Heard's uh, attorneys do that in their stupid? <laughs> I don't know, but you again, like he's answering in his own voice. He's changing his voices. He's objecting yeah. to his own things. Everybody around him is just like yeah. going, "Like, we got the right guy." What the hell's going on? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and it was super dumb because then he gets to be questioned by Matt Murphy and Gina Satriani, which is suicide. Yeah. Like, Rodney, they're pretty good at this. They do it for a living. (laughs) They're, like, way better at it than you are. Not just for fun. (laughs) Yeah, and in L.A. and Orange County, like, they're good at what they do. Yeah, no kidding. So he cracked a little bit under Murphy's questioning. And when they got him, like, good and worked up, they asked, how did Charlotte Lamb's DNA get on an earring in your storage unit in Seattle? Which he (laughs) hadn't answered to any of the DNA stuff. And his temper kind of was like getting the best of him at that second. And he he just snapped at him and he said, I'll explain it to the jury later. Wow. Can he just plead the fifth? I don't know, but he didn't explain it to the jury later either. So I guess he never figured out a way to do yeah, that. So sounds, sounds pretty accurate. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. But if you plead the fifth, that's pretty much like, yeah, I did it. Oh, fuck yeah. Like, hell yeah. Yeah. So it's like he had to say something, but he's like, I'll explain it to the jury later. Yeah. When you plead the fifth, it's because you're guilty. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. You did it. Yeah. So Murphy and Satriana do their closing statements and- They summarize their case, the DNA, how he shouldn't get away with Robbins just because he left her somewhere that animals destroyed the evidence and Dana Crappa didn't call anybody when she found the body. So, like, that's not fair to Robin. Like, they give these, like, really good closing statements that are like, just because there's no DNA in Robin doesn't mean he didn't kill her. Right. Yeah. Because they, I saw an interview with Matt Murphy and he's like, I don't want him to get any free murders. Like, if he if he did it, I want him to get in trouble for it. Like, it doesn't matter if he's been convicted of nine other ones. Totally. So when Rodney does his closing statements, it's not so great. One of his boom wow moments is that only Robin's mom testified that she even had her ears pierced. He thought this was going to be like what? a boom wow factor. Yeah, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, Rodney, she was fucking 12. Who else would know except her mom that her ears were pierced? Who else would know that? It's not like she had a boyfriend that was like, oh, yeah, I buy her earrings every year for her anniversary. She's 12. Like, he's a moron. Yeah, he's out there. Yeah. Just like his opening statement, he never even mentions the four L.A. murders at all. And he rests his case. So the jury goes into deliberation. When they come back, they find Rodney Alcala guilty of all five counts of murder. If I'm the jury and, like, I'm getting called for this, I'm going to be like... Wait, this is the third time we're doing this. We yeah. already know this is why I'm missing work. Yeah. So that you guys can say that this guy did it for the third time. Thank you. Yeah, you're guilty, asshole. Get out of here. Yeah. 
Well, but only Robin Samso's was for the third time. He's now a convicted serial killer. The other four, this was their first trial, and they got him. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but I mean, he's yeah. been convicted, you know, totally. other times. And totally. honestly, he shouldn't have been out to begin with. Like, yeah. he should have never in jail. been able to be a yeah. serial killer. He should have been in jail forever for Tally Shapiro. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I agree with you on that for sure. So, but now they go to the penalty phase and Gina Satriani, the DA for LA, lays out all the brutal details of all the crimes. And she also has Monique testify, the 15 year old who survived Rodney Alcala's abduction and sexual assault. You remember by tricking him into thinking she was like, cool with it. I could never forget. Yeah. So Monique described her whole ordeal to the jury and then had to be cross-examined by Rodney. And I'm sure she just wanted to punch him in the face too. Right. But the only decent thing I will say, not that it's any, there's no redeeming qualities about him. The only decent thing that he did was he did not question her like in depth about what happened. Oh, what a nice guy. Wow. Yeah. He pretty much said, hey, don't you remember I apologized to you for that? I thought we were cool. Hey, man, I said sorry. Yeah. And she like snapped back at him like, fuck you. (laughs) You know, and that was the end of it. Amen. Like, he was genuinely surprised that she didn't accept his apology. Like, he was surprised she was testifying. He's like, I thought we squashed this. <sighs> he sucks. Yeah, but at least he didn't question her up and down, you know. So, Gina also has Tally Shapiro testify again. And by this time, she's 50. Wow. Yeah. So, we're talking, this shit has been going on for 42 years. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and Tally Shapiro's not real cool with him cross-examining her either. Like, I wouldn't want to be questioned by the guy who tried to kill me, you know? And Rodney, I guess, knew that because he actually didn't question her either. He just apologized for his despicable behavior. And she gracefully said, no, thank you. I don't want your apology. And she left. (laughs) (laughs) So then the families of the five victims got to give their victim impact statement, which... Rodney didn't say or do anything during. He just sat there. And Murphy closes out the penalty phase with a super awesome closing statement. Like, really good, heartfelt. Like, totally, obviously, he's really good at what he does. He put a lot of time and a lot of work into this trial. And then Rodney gives his closing statements, which are real dumb. And he actually plays a song called Alice's Restaurant. Did you hear this song? No. Do you know it? I don't. Yeah. And it has lines in it like kill, kill, kill and eating burnt dead bodies and getting veins stuck in your teeth. It's really weird. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's a real weird song. And I cannot figure out what the hell it was about. And I don't think anybody else really does either. Like the jury's just like, what the hell is going on? Like we don't, I still to this day and after all this research have no idea what the point of playing that song was but the jury comes back with another death sentence so whatever yeah i guess it worked it all came out okay yeah so now he's been sentenced to death three times (laughs) hopefully one of them will stick this time yeah so back to san quentin he goes for the third time this poor family they've been through three fucking trials with this guy i can't even believe that that's insane that shouldn't even be like at some point i can't believe that they didn't just shoot him that's crazy i know I know, it's crazy, huh? Yeah, and I love the investigators that I, like, I saw an interview with the investigators from the Robin Samso case from Huntington Beach, and they call him the monster because they won't use his real name because Robin's family doesn't like people to say his real name. He is. Or 40 years later, whatever it's been now, and they still call him the monster. They don't say his name. I thought that was pretty nice of them. 
Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Yeah, so he goes back to death row, but not for long. A year later, DNA linked him to the murder of Cecilia Michael Crilly in New York in 1971. So while he was on the run for Tally Shapiro, he murdered a TWA flight attendant in her apartment in 1971. And then DNA also linked him to Ellen Hover's murder, the socialite that went missing for a year and his alias was on her calendar. So he goes to New York for this and pleads guilty and gets 25 years to life. I mean, this guy really could be America's most prolific serial killer. We have no idea. We have no idea. Because they didn't even have it. He wasn't even a suspect in Cecilia's. Like, he was only linked to that through DNA. Yeah, like, he could be linked to lots more. Mm Mm-hmm. So after the trials were over, the Huntington Beach police released 120 photos of unknown women that were found in his storage locker to try and identify them. Because of the thousands of photos, there was only some that were able to be released to the public. Out of these 120 photos, some matched missing women, some matched people that have been found alive, and some haven't been identified at all. Wow. Yeah, one of these photos was matched to a missing woman named Christine Thornton who'd been missing since 1977, and her skeletal remains were found in Wyoming in April of 82, along with the skeletal remains of her unborn child. Oh, my God. Because she was pregnant when she went missing. And the photo of her in Rodney's collection was her sitting on his motorcycle. And police say it's the same area in the background as where her remains were found. Oh, so, like, he took the picture and then pretty immediately, like, killed her. Yes. So in September of 2016, Rodney was charged with her murder, too. Thank goodness. So there's all these unknown, unidentified women in all these photos. And they're, st- I mean, 2016, that was only a couple years ago. They're still matching them to murder victim. Like, Christine Thornton's body was found in April of 82, and she was a Jane Doe until 2015. Oh, my gosh. Like, these photos have solved cases here. So he's also suspected of other murders in Arizona, New Hampshire, San Francisco, and Washington. But there isn't DNA in those cases, just circumstantial evidence. So there's not enough to try him. My goodness. Yeah. It's been said that the last couple years, Rodney was not like super good. He was supposedly had dementia and was kind of like laid around in a hospital bed all day. And they transferred him off death row to California State Prison in Corcoran. And that's where on July 24th of last year, he died of natural causes. So there is a happy ending after all. Yeah, exactly. It's just <laughs> waiting for I was like, so he's finally, we don't have to deal with any more yeah. overturnings yeah. of any convictions or anything like that. My God. Like, again, we forgot how bad he was. And now you know how bad he was. I did. I super forgot. And he's been linked to eight murders officially and two victims that survived but were almost murdered. But there could be a lot more. Of the 120 photos that were released by the Huntington Beach Police, there's still quite a few that have never been identified. Mostly young women and girls. There are a couple of boys. So if you want to take a look at these pictures and see if you recognize anybody or show them to your parents or grandparents to see if they recognize anybody... Check out our Instagram at From Crime to Crime or our TikTok at From Crime to Crime and you can see the photos. And they're actually not super bad, like blurry 1970s photos. He was a photographer. Oh, good point. So yeah, as good as it got then, they were good. Yeah, they're great. I mean, you look, I'm like, wow, these are really clear photos. They look almost like pictures of people now dressed up like people from the 70s. (laughs) Does that make sense? Because the quality is good. 
super usually when you see a photo from the 70s it's like i don't know that could be richard nixon or it could be you know <laughs> britney spears yeah. i have no idea can't right. see him <laughs> i'm gonna put together like a little video on tiktok of all the pictures like a slideshow little, little montage yeah so just in case anybody recognizes anybody tiktok's where everybody finds each other now that's true yeah i saw a lady who found a class ring on a beach like in Alabama and like two days later there was like some old lady and they were like meeting up to exchange her class ring from the 50s. Wow. That's incredible. TikTok finds everybody. I know. Brings everyone together. Yep. All right. Well, that's the story of Rodney Alcala. Yeah. All of it. And how he almost got away with it forever. And if yeah. And it's luckily he didn't though. Like Samuel Little, he got caught in the end too, thankfully. Yeah. But that's why when you were saying like, is Robin his first victim? And it's like, well, Technically, she was his last victim. Yeah. No, you're right. But we didn't find out about all the other ones until after Robin. Right. So. All right. Well, this has been a really long night. Yeah, it is. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I know. I can tell you're like falling asleep. Yep. Well, again, like Erica said, go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime, our TikTok at From to Crime to Crime, our Twitter From Crime, the number two crime. Come find us. Come talk to us. Come hang out with us. If if you haven't yet, please leave us a five-star rate and review. We would love to have those. It really does help people find the podcast. That's really important to us, too. Yep. And don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dough Project. All right. Well, I love you. I love you. I'll call you later. All right. Bye. Bye.